Hello and welcome to the Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garmo. And I'm Drew Evans. Well, Drew, since the last time we recorded, we've had a lot of really exciting things that have gone on. Uh, We're really excited for today's episode. We've got two fantastic guests, and we'll get into that in just a moment. But before we do, we want to follow up on something that we talked about on our last episode. So last episode, we announced that we were launching a Patreon with the goal, as we discussed, of hiring an editor, not of making any money ourselves, but just to allow us to hire an editor and go to a more regular recording schedule uh, when the season kicks off this fall. We were optimistic that things would go well with Patreon. We have been absolutely blown away by the support that we've gotten from the Mock Review community. You all are just absolutely incredible. At the time we're recording this right now, we have 26 paid subscribers to the Patreon and more than 20 people who are doing the free follow option. So the community on Patreon has grown to almost 50 members. Uh, Almost every single one of those people is in the Discord. And what it means for us is that we're actually starting that search for an editor right now. We're working to put together a job description. We're doing some research on exactly where we can advertise it. And we're super optimistic that we're going to be able to have an editor in place within the next month or two, which is exactly what we're hoping for. So most importantly to everyone listening, whether you're on the Discord or the Patreon or not, thank you so, so, so much for being so supportive of us. We cannot thank you enough. This this whole thing, like we mentioned on the last episode, is a little scary to kind of put yourself out there like that. And we've been so just thrilled by the response that we've gotten Drew, I know that you've been really active on the Discord. I have too. I've been so happy with how the Discord has been going. So tell our listeners a little bit about the Discord and and what's been going on on there so far. Absolutely, Ben. I mean, I have been absolutely floored by how many people joined the Patreon. I really, I got to say, guys, when I first, when we first talked about doing this, I thought there was a distinct chance that literally no one joined and Ben and I looked like total fools and we just fell flat on our faces and it has been so unbelievable to see just how many people have joined and really on all levels. I mean, look, thank you to everyone who is following us, who is on the $2 level, who is on the $5 level. Every single one of you means the world to us. It has been just so, so cool to see so many people, people that I know, people that I don't, that I'm excited to get to know. It's just, it's really been something short of incredible. Um, but Ben, you did allude to the Discord, and I will certainly say that it has been really picking up, and I'm just so excited to see it growing as well. I I think that I was a little bit worried even about the Discord, because I know that there are other platforms, whether it's impeachments or mock trial confessions. I know there are other discords, but you know, we have been so thrilled to have a lot of people that have joined the discord and, and we're really having meaningful conversations. I think what is really cool for those of you that aren't in it, the thing that I think makes it really special is that we have such an impressive diversity of thought. We've managed to get a group in this discord that is made up of current coaches, former coaches, current competitors, former competitors, current judges. I mean, we literally have every possible perspective on these issues that we could possibly ever hope to. And it's making for really vibrant, interesting conversations. And I just love that we're able to have such 
such illuminating conversations about these issues. I think especially after the board meeting and during the board meeting, we were just, I mean, I would come on and have a hundred notifications of just the different conversations that were going down and what people are discussing in the Discord. I mean, it really, really has been amazing. And I'm just so excited to get to be a part of that and to have so many people joining. I think that now that the Rookie Rumble case was just released, we've launched into a whole nother uh, discussion where people are discussing um, the intricacies of that case. People have been um, able to, you know, just, again, talk to people of so many different perspectives, whether it's some of the case writers or uh, people that are planning the event. We have people that are competing in the event. We have people that are going to be judging the event. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where it's really cool just to see how many different people are participating in this discussion. And I, I can safely say I don't think I've seen any other platform exist that is able to replicate that. And so it's really meaningful um, for me and for Ben for us to be able to provide this to all of you. Um, I also will just say that uh, on a more personal level, the Discord is also a really cool way for both Ben and I to actually get to know a lot of our listeners and get feedback from you guys. This is allowing us to actually reach out to you, our audience, to get questions that you all have whether it's about something going on in the mock trial world or something that you want us to ask in our next episode. I really think it's going to help us continue to make the mock review the absolute best it can be. And I'm particularly excited that I think the most prominent and most common complaint we get, um, you know, that we kind of are focused in a certain region and that there are other regions we're less familiar with. I think this is finally something that we're going to be able to tackle because we now are able to learn a lot more about further parts of the country through the Discord. So I'm hoping this is a great way for us to finally kind of reach over and, and get out to audiences that have felt let down by us in the past, and I hope that all of you feel the same about that. But again, I just want to say one last time, thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone whatever level you are at, whether it is the free level, the $2, the $5, each and every one of you mean the world to us. And I hope if you haven't, that you consider it because it really, really is a just the most amazing thing. I, I never could have imagined it would go this well. Yeah. Just to echo all of that, uh, it's patreon.com slash the mock review. If you want to try to get there, patreon.com slash the mock review. If, if, it's best for you to do the follow the free tier. That's fantastic. We are absolutely thrilled to have you. This is not a paywall discord. Um, if you feel like you can do the two bucks or the five bucks, we're super grateful for that too. But this has just been fantastic. And I'm just telling you from the perspective of someone who's edited the now 70 plus episodes that we've done, the idea of having an editor so we can really continue to bring you great content for many years to come. It, it just has me really fired up and really excited. So today's episode, uh, we're going to be talking about a couple different things. We're going to take a break in a moment here, and then we'll be joined by friend of the pod, Nat Warner, a uh, coach of approximately half of Amtus programs, who's going to take us through. We're going to chat about the board meeting because Nat was there. Uh, and then we'll take another break, and then Nat's going to stay on, and we'll be joined by another friend of the pod, Kate Hainer-Slattery. Uh, both Nat and Kate are on the Rookie Rumble case committee. And so we're going to talk Rookie Rumble, that case is out, that tournament is coming up in just a couple weeks, and we're going to go through all the details for that as well. Uh, Drew, this is going to be a really exciting episode. Anything else you're thinking about before we take our break and chat, chat with Nat? 
Nope, I think that sounds good. I'm just honestly looking forward to chatting with both Kate and Nat about the wonderful case that they've written. And then also I'm really excited to chat with Nat about the board meeting. I think there was a lot there um, and definitely going to be a very interesting discussion with him. And I'm thinking that uh, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I will say that uh, to all of our listeners that for some reason haven't already listened to the episode um, before this one that was on the board meeting agenda, I would definitely recommend like pause the podcast right now. Go listen to that one first, just because I think that is going to provide a lot of the, you know, kind of depth about what the board meeting was about and what the actual uh, agenda was that they were discussing so that you'll have a better understanding of what we're going to discuss. Um, I think this is going to be a much quicker, more cursory version of that uh, more in-depth discussion that was had. So I just wanted to give that disclaimer to everyone, but honestly, looking forward to the conversation. Can't wait for it. Yep, I agree with that. We we did a pretty comprehensive summary of what was on the agenda in our nearly two-hour episode the, the last time. So we'll uh, take a quick break here. We'll get Nat on the line, and then we're going to talk through uh, what happened at this year's board meeting. So everybody hang tight, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Mock Review. As we mentioned in our previous segment, the uh, first item of discussion for today's agenda is going to be the AMTA board meeting. Uh, the AMTA board meeting was a couple of weeks ago by the time you're hearing this episode in sunny San Diego, California. Uh, I was there and our guest today, Nat Warner, was there. Nat, of course, is a friend of the pod. If you want to hear Nat's whole origin story and mock trial background, you can go back and listen to episode 30 where Nat joined us for a roundtable uh, to hear all about uh his story and his involvement in mock trial. Nat, of course, is a very well-versed uh, coach in uh, the community. You all know him from one of the seven or eight different programs <laughs> that he coaches. And <laughs> he's also a member of the uh, Invention Ad Hoc Committee that came up with a lot of the motions that we discussed in the last episode and we're going to be talking about today. So Nat, thanks for coming on. It's good to have you back on the pod. Yeah, thanks so much for having me back. Yeah, we're we're really glad to have you on. We appreciate you taking a few minutes to chat with us about all the stuff that you're doing in AMTA. Uh, I'll launch into the discussion in a second, but first, obviously, I, I I made the joke I did a moment ago. But but where are you actively coaching at right now? What's sort of your coaching lineup for this upcoming season? Yeah, so last year was my my last year coaching Wesleyan, which is where I I went to undergrad. Um, it was very bittersweet. Um, they're really, really, really wonderful students, and I'm going to miss them a lot. But I'm also really excited because next year I'm 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 back coaching Columbia and and probably a little bit of Northwestern remotely, depending on on what their coaching needs are. Um, and Columbia and is also just a really wonderful group of students, really young program. I think we have three rising juniors, no seniors, so a lot of growth to be had and 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 teaching to be done there. But uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, and Columbia obviously is a program with such a pedigree and history and AMTA, and so it's really cool that that you're there and that uh, Cubate is back on the calendar for this year, which I know we're <laughs> super excited about at at UMBC. Uh, but let's go ahead and talk about the board meeting. As I mentioned, uh, Nat and I were there, and Drew was following along closely on Zoom and uh, on the the 
mock review discord. So a uh, couple quick notes here. We're just going to kind of roll through everything that was discussed and was passed. We're not going to do it in quite as much detail as obviously we did on the last episode. Uh, I want to start us out with the motion that was proposed that uh, garnered the most sort of reaction and uh, I guess I'll say controversy before the meeting itself, which is Invention 01. That was the rule to move AMTA to a necessary inference standard. I think most, uh, if not all of you are aware of this by now, but at the beginning of discussion of Invention 01, which happened about halfway through the first day, Justin Bernstein, who was the chair of that ad hoc convention committee that Nat is on, uh, when he presented this motion, said uh, to everyone, hey, we're going to have a discussion about this. And then based on the reaction and feedback we've gotten, we're going to go back to the drawing board uh, and essentially go back to committee and try to rethink this a little bit. There was uh, what I thought was a, a wide ranging and productive discussion about Invention 01. And then at the end, it was referred back to committee, essentially to give the Invention Ad Hoc Committee a year to take another crack at it, take another look at that particular issue and uh, come back at the basically the next year, probably leading up to next year's board meeting and uh, try again with with that particular question. Uh, I thought all things considered, that was probably the right outcome, given some of the reaction to the initial motion. Um, so how about Nat, I'll start with you since you're on the committee and then and then Drew after that. Uh, what was your thoughts on sort of how Invention 01 was discussed and and where we're going from here with that issue? Yeah, so I should probably disclaim first of all that that I'm I'm here in my individual capacity. I, I don't speak for the board. I, I I don't speak for the committee. Um, um but uh, I can talk about what what my thinking was as as a, uh, going through the board meeting and and going through helping to create some of those motions. I mean, the big overarching principle I had was sort of twofold. I wanted to make the rules easier to understand. Because we know from just the, the frequency with which sanctions are occurring and with the, some of the feedback we got from the survey we sent out that people just really don't get the rules. At, at the way they're written, people don't understand them. And so we were hoping to do something to make them clearer. And the second thing I personally really wanted to do was create an alternative to student suspensions. I sort of fundamentally, at the end of the day, believe the activity exists for the students and taking them out of the activity when they invent improperly kind of defeats the purpose of, of, of what the activity is for, which is for them. So those were the two aims. And, and the necessary inference was one of a menu of options we, we wanted to provide as a way of trying to make the rules clearer. And I'm, I'm hopeful that over the course of the next year or so, we'll see some of the other motions that did pass actually do the work that clarifying that standard might be. And, and who knows, maybe next summer, we don't need to change anything. Uh, remains to be seen. Yeah, I'll say that from what Nat is saying, I think that's a lot of the sense that I had from looking at a lot of the motions that were made. Um, and it makes a lot of sense. I think that the goals that Nat said are, are, I think, really good goals to have. And I think, honestly, were sincerely accomplished, which I think is is not insignificant because this has been an issue for a long time. Um, I, I will just say that I'm really glad that this went back to committee. Obviously, I discussed it in a lot of depth in the last episode, why I think that a necessary inference rule is a little bit too strict and going a little bit too far. But I get the idea behind it as wanting to find some clearer standard. Now, I will say that I think 
I'm really optimistic that with all the other changes that have been made, we might find that we no longer need to change this. Um, and that's kind of what I'm personally hoping for. But I think it definitely remains to be seen as Nat said. The last thing I want to say on this, though, is that I think that this is a great example of how important it is to make every single person's voice heard. I know there was a lot of discussion. Obviously, we discussed it on the pod, but people were talking about this, and I'm not sure exactly how many reached out to board members or to the committee itself about this issue. Um, I know at least a couple did, but my guess, based on Justin's reaction, is that a lot of people did. And I hope this is just a, a way of showing everyone that this is a way to make your voice heard, to reach out, to let them know, hey, I have concerns about this. These are my concerns. And that those really are considered. As we're going to go through it in a second, I think, I, you know, Ben and Nat, correct me if I'm wrong with this, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that was the only motion that was positively recommended that didn't end up getting passed. And I think there's a reason for that. I mean, people really had a strong reaction to it. And making your voice heard is the most important thing you can do um, as far as being a competitor when board meetings going on. So good job to everyone who did. Um, thank you for doing that. And uh, thank you to the invention committee for doing a lot of hard work. And I think coming up with some really good solutions um, for the most part. Yeah, and I'll echo and say that the sentiment you just expressed that several of these other motions that were passed will hopefully make uh, INVO1, the necessary inference rule, maybe not <laughs> necessary, uh, was one that was expressed by multiple people at the meeting, and that maybe we can make some changes to the rules, but but limit those based on the other things that we did. And I'll also take this opportunity as well to uh, praise the board, both the committee that Nat's on, as well as the board collectively, for the efforts that have been made related to transparency and inclusion at the meeting. At the time that we recorded uh, our last episode, we weren't aware and hadn't been told yet that the Zoom link for the meeting would be distributed to the community. Uh, and it was. And I know that several people who are in the Mock Review Discord and several people I know were able to sit and listen and participate in the board meeting because of that decision. Uh, I think that was a big significant step in the right direction for not having those meetings be paywalled and for having them be available to the community. Uh, so Drew, Nat, anything else about INV01 and the conversation that happened there before we move to some of these other motions? No, I think that the only other thing that I would add is um, while I totally agree, I would love it if they had published or, you know, because it was on Zoom, if they had recorded that discussion, um, or if that discussion could be in some way reflected in the minutes, I think that there were a lot of really important things that got, you know, explained and tossed around during that discussion. A lot of potential explanations for the future and what we might have to come. And I worry that going back to the transparency issue, that people that weren't actually listening to the board meeting um, really have no idea what is going on with that or what they might have come looking forward. And I guess that to me, it's just such an easy step to now go and, and post that recording or to include it somewhere or just have the minutes in some way reflect it. Um, but I know from being on the Zoom call that it was definitely not um, the entire community um, on the call. It was a very, very small group. But um, 
I'm, I'm, uh, as you said, Ben, I'm very, very glad that they did it at all. I was glad that I was able to listen in on it. I will say the audio wasn't always perfect at times, but I actually was very pleased that Ampta made some efforts to, uh, to actually uh, fix that and make sure people were speaking into microphones. That way that everyone on Zoom could actually hear and be as much a part of the discussion as really we could ask to be. The only thing I'll add is is that Drew's exactly right, and 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 here I I can speak on behalf of the committee. I think, which is to say, you know, thank you to everybody in the community who who reached out uh, to us directly, who who filled out the survey. We got a tremendous number of responses to the survey, and a lot of people put a lot of time and thought into writing uh, additional thoughts over and above the questions that we'd asked. Those really helped. They really, really helped. Uh, heck, even the post on mock trial confessions, um, you know, <laughs> those were things that we looked at and we read and, and, and we were grateful for. So, um, we really, really benefited from the community input that we got in, in creating not just this, but, but all of the invention motions. Breaking news on the mock review, Nat Warner endorses mock trial confessions. <laughs> wow, <that's laughs> <like a title. laughs> um, no, I, I think that's really great to hear from the inside that the committee was was really engaged in uh, just hearing community feedback. I totally agree with all of that. So kind of moving us down the list a little bit here, we've got a couple that I think are not going to be uh, particularly controversial or discussion worthy. So I'll kind of I'm taking them in the order that they were actually taken at the meeting. Uh, so first, just chatting briefly about Invention 6 and Invention 7. Those were the sort of companion motions to dissolve the Competition Response Committee and to create the Competition Integrity Committee. Uh, the idea that we discussed on the last meeting was essentially the CRC was often comprised of some of AMTA's busiest members and also not everyone who was forward-facing with the case, uh, people who maybe wasn't part of their job title to even have to read the case. And so it didn't make a ton of sense for them to be adjudicating uh, invention complaints, the CIC is supposed to be a specialized body chosen by the president for that specific purpose. Uh, I think this was a good move. We can discuss in a tiny bit more detail uh, when we get to the question about in-tournament review in the CIC, but generally this passed comfortably and, and I didn't see any reason why it shouldn't. Uh, Drew, Nat, anything, any thoughts you have on this? I think in the spirit of making this episode less than two hours, I think on some of these, I'm good to just they did it. We talked about it before. If you want more details, go listen to the agenda. All right, Drew, you want to pick up the next one? Sure. So the next one that we got was Invention 08, which was essentially that they were going to issue some advisory opinions. And this is that the CIC specifically would issue advisory opinions based on submissions that they got um, throughout the year. And this was really meant as just a pilot program for this upcoming season and I think that a lot of it, and you know, Nat might be able to explain this more as someone that was on the committee, I think a lot of this is that there are a lot of changes happening and they want to give the opportunity to people to get clarification if necessary. And hopefully that the different advisory opinions that are released become a way for people to get a better understanding of the case-specific nuances of how uh, the rules are going to interact with that specific case. I will just say for my part, I think this might be the single best uh, motion that I've seen AMTA come up with in a while. Um, I just think that it's such a great idea to do. I really hope that it works well this year. I hope that they continue it for future years. I think that issuing advisory opinions like this really gives all of the students the opportunity to ask questions if they have them. And I, I think that 
it becomes much harder for students to claim that they didn't know what they were doing was wrong if they've had the opportunity to to ask. And I think that that's, that's huge. And I hope people actually utilize it. But um, Nat, I, I am really curious what you think of this one, um, what any of the thought behind it was, and whether you see it hopefully um, applying to future years. Yeah, I, I'm really excited about this one. I, I'm I'm sensitive to some of the concerns that were brought up at the board meeting about, oh, can people weaponize this? Can can I say, oh, well, I saw UMBC running this really clever strategy, so I'm going to send in a pretextual com- a question to this advisory committee saying, hey, can a team run, insert UMBC's entire case theory, and then send that out to the entire AMTA world, and then Ben gets really mad at me and doesn't invite me back on the pod. <laughs> um, I think that's fair. Um, You know, written into that motion is the ability for the CIC to both edit the response and and just not give an opinion if they think for whatever reason it's it's pretextual or or not important or not really a close question. Um, But outside those few, I hope, uh, hedge cases, you know, I, I hope that most people use this in the spirit that it was intended to be used. I just think it, it, it just makes quite a lot of sense. Let people ask questions if they don't understand things. Easy. Yep. I enthusiastically agree with that. I also share some of those concerns. Just I think it was good that we sort of aired those out at the board meeting. And I trust Jonathan Woodward to select a CIC who's going to be thoughtful in the way that they address advisory opinions and providing detail without uh, you know, sharing proprietary information. I also think this community is circular enough that if if somebody comes up with a clever case theory three weeks later, you're going to see 15 teams running it. It's just the way that things go. We all sort of uh, at best are inspired by each other. At worst, just kind of take each other's theories. And it is just the nature of kind of the world that, that AMTA is. And I don't actually even necessarily think that's a bad thing. So I totally agree. I'm excited to see how this works and just to see it in action. And I think that it's going to be a really positive change. Uh, Drew, Nat, anything else to add on this one before we keep moving? Yeah, the last thing I'll note on this is that I think that there's this really interesting, like the whole discussion that both of you are having about, um, you know, people basically using this as a way to air out someone's theme or or to, or or maybe people's hesitancy to, to ask a question about it because they think they have this really clever, uh, you know, theme and theory or, or whatever that no one else is going to come up with and they want to try. Uh, my only reason why I'm personally not super concerned with that is, first of all, for all the reasons that you guys have both said, um, I think that the committee is going to do hopefully a good job of, of not using it in that way. And second of all, maybe it's just me, but I, I really don't think that our goal should be, oh, who can come up with the closest version of 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 almost hitting the line, but not, and that that is the best way to do it. And so that's going to score the best. I sort of think that the point of this is for teams that are like, oh, we like this thing that we're trying to do. It's not necessarily like infinitely better than what everyone else is doing and not something where everyone's going to read it and be like, holy cow, you can do that? Well, we should be doing that too. And more just, okay, I want to make sure that what we're doing isn't actually cheating or isn't a problem. And I think that those are are good reasons to be using this and something that I think students 
Um, I know I would have used it when I was a competitor, and I think others probably would too. So I'm very optimistic that it's going to be used, as both of you have said, in the spirit that it was intended. And I think it's going to have a really positive effect for people. So I'm definitely very, very excited about this one. But if there isn't any further discussion on it, Ben, if you want to go ahead and move us forward, I think that should be fine. Yeah, so let's talk next about Invention 10. Uh, this was something that Drew and I had a fair amount of conversation on on our last episode. And this is the one that essentially said that precedent, in order for something to be held as precedent, it should be in the rule book. The, the justification behind the motion was to try to keep all of our rules in one place and that it's not fair to expect a team, maybe a new team, an uncoached team, a younger team, to know all of these different documents that that may be out there. Um, I will say that the conversation around this motion, which did pass, the conversation at the board meeting helped me with a lot of my concerns. Uh, it sounds like essentially the application of this motion is just going to be that if you know if if we issue a bunch of advisory opinions that they're not you know they don't represent binding precedent for a future year and you're not expected to have to try to apply them from one case to another and it's not that if you have a sanctions complaint against you you couldn't go back and reference them but they're not in the rule book so i i think that maybe this motion could have been amended to make that a little clearer but generally i thought that this was passed and it was the conversation around it made me not super concerned uh, about this particular motion, although I share some of the concerns still that that precedent is important and that we absolutely should value the guidance that we give uh, from year to year. Drew, I know you had some thoughts on this on the last episode, so I guess I'll sort of kick it to you first for your reaction to this passing and, and the discussion that happened at the meeting. Sure. So, I mean, I was able to listen in on some of the discussion I will admit that it was not something where I got every single word, but um, I, I I hear the sentiment that Ben you're referring to. I know that what was discussed um, was definitely not the more cynical view that I maybe had um, during the agenda. I guess where I come down on this is, sure, I get that AMTA isn't going to say um, that the reason they're doing this is so that they're not bound by their past decisions, but I still think that's kind of the effect that it might have. And if they really, like, I, I think that there were amendments that could have been made. I think there are ways that we could have tweaked this rule that would have really satisfied a lot of the concerns that I had. And I think that a lot of others had as well. I mean, based on the discussion that others had. Um, so I still am not thrilled about this one. I think that the the basic idea of we want all of our rules to be in the same place. We don't want to ask people to look back through all of the years and years of past cases for to understand our rules. I get that. I agree. I, I, I don't think that that is a bad sentiment. I just still don't think that the way this rule was written um, is the best way to accomplish that goal. That being said, as one of the people that helped write it, um, Nat, I am really curious what you thought about this. Yeah, the the thinking was less that AMTA or the CIC doesn't have to abide by the decisions it's made in past years. Um, I guess that's true, but the hope obviously is that insofar as the rules don't change, the position of the CIC doesn't change either. The thinking was more about the students and and the fear that at least I had was, let's say the CIC does mm, 100 advisory committee uh, or uh, 100 advisory answers a year. Maybe that's high. Who, who knows? In five years, 
you don't want to a team to be in the position of violating you know number 172 of these 500 advisory answers that they've given that's just unrealistic it's asking a crazy amount of the, of the students i don't want to put anyone in the position of having to read through that and of course it compounds in 10 years you've got more so that was the thinking there um I think I think it, it does a fair job of that. Um, but I understand the, the other perspective as well, of course. You know, I'll, I'll just say this, Nat. I, I think that I, I don't actually think – I think that the advisory opinions point is a fair one to the extent that, at least in my mind, and this I know is part of the discussion, the advisory opinions are meant to be pretty case-specific. So past advisory opinions may not be as applicable – to the next year's case, which is why it's important to do them each year. That being said, I think my concern is more with just when they make you know any decision whatsoever, um, not necessarily just an advisory opinion, but if it is a sanction. Um, I think that you know utilizing san- past sanctions as case law is, at least in my opinion, the most helpful way I have had in the past of understanding um, the committee's or this is when I say the committee, the the CRC's interpretation of the rules. And I think if we start saying that their past decisions on previous sanctions on previous years are not a way to understand their interpretation, it really leaves, in my mind, a lot more room for a, a lack of understanding and a gap between the student and the board. So to me, that's where I kind of would have liked to see it come down. And again, I think that maybe this could have, we could have satisfied both of these with just a couple of amendments, maybe something along the lines of previous advisory um, opinions are case specific and don't apply to the following year, but um, sanctions themselves or, uh, or, or certain advisory opinions that we write into the rules will um, be, you know, preserved in some way or another. But um, I, I don't know. I think that I just, I think as it is currently written, I have concerns and, you know, we'll, we'll see how it ends up being applied, but I, I would just leave it at that. Yeah. And, and just sort of to wrap this portion of the discussion up, I think that what Nat said makes a lot of sense. And I think that in practice, that is likely how this rule is going to be used is just to try to clarify things for students. Um, and I will be interested to see how many public sanctions letters, if we're getting all these advisory opinions, how many public sanctions letters will we even have to, to utilize as, as some form of precedent? Um, because we don't have that many. We have a lot of sanctions, but there's really very few actual public sanctions letters out there uh, that can be used as precedent. So bottom line on this one, I think, is is remains to be seen exactly how it works out. But I definitely understand the justification uh, for why it was passed. And just just before we move on, Ben, I actually want to note on that, and I think that this is part of where it comes from for me. I think, at least on invention, I think AMTA should be pretty much required to publish some form of a, a sanction letter on it. And I think it's important to keep it anonymous, you know, do what you can to make it so it's not obvious what uh, the school is. I think that anonymity is important. But I don't know, like it just to me, what I really fear and what I really don't like is them just saying, oh, we've sanctioned another four schools this year and no one has any idea why. 
you know, it's not that I don't trust them. I, I, you know, I don't have a problem with them making those decisions. I just want to know what those teams did that got them sanctioned. That way other teams can know, oh, don't do that. Or so teams know, oh, you know, I thought that was a problem. Okay, cool. I'm glad that that actually was seen as a problem. I just think that that is what is important to me. And that's what I think is missing from this. And that's where I come down on so much of this. So I, I agree with a lot of the sentiment that's been said. I just don't like seeing sanctions without an explanation and that aren't going to be held accountable to. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And I think it's part of a broader conversation that we're having as a community right now about transparency in this process and how to make sure that teams feel like they understand the rules. Going back to what Nat said a couple of motions earlier about the reason that Invention 01 was proposed is a goal by everyone involved, regardless of how you feel about certain ideas, to try and increase the level of understanding about what we can and can't do. So moving us through to another uh, motion that was passed, and that's Invention 09. This is the pilot program for in-tournament review uh, by the CIC. This was largely passed as written. I think the only substantive amendment that was changed is instead of requiring two members of the CIC to, to reach a decision, it was amended to require three. There were a couple other proposed amendments relating to requiring the entire CIC or five members or stuff like that. But I think it passed requiring a minimum of three members of the CIC. And if I recall correctly, there was also a motion passed that essentially said the CIC can investigate uh, sanctions or possible sanctions at the NCT, but they're not required to do so and they have discretion on what to choose. We obviously could do an entire episode on this topic alone. In-tournament review is is a complicated and, and challenging uh, topic that I think was reflected in the conversation. Uh, but bottom line is, I'll be very curious to see how this plays out. And I think that this is something that's worth trying. Not convinced, you know, how successful it can be, but, but I think it's worth trying. And, and I'm interested to see where it goes. Uh, Drew, do you want to go ahead and take us forward to our next invention motion? Sure. So moving us right along, um, again, Invention 01 was the long discussion, but uh, it did end up getting um, you know, sent back to committee. So we move on to Invention 02. Uh, I know this feels out of order to folks, but this was the order that it was done at the meeting. Um, and Invention 02 passed. This was the one about kind of putting all the demo uh, rules together. And, you know, as people might remember from the last episode, we had a long discussion about a particular section within the the this motion regarding an explanation of what can go on a demo uh, specifically to the method of an expert and that discussion was actually echoed at the board meeting and it was subsequently withdrawn from this motion and they do not include that anymore so the basically biggest problem I think that we had with it was taken out so I'm definitely really happy to see that um, I think again it just was very pleasing for me that AMTA was willing to have these discussions, that they recognized that people had a reaction to the specific examples and wordings that were given. And they said, you know what? No, that's not our intention. Maybe we are fine with this stuff. And so they took it out entirely. Um, on the whole, I think this was a good motion other than that. Um, again, we discussed it in depth in the last episode, but I do think that overall it's good to centralize and clarify rules. So I'll send this over to you guys. Um, Nat, Ben, either of you have thoughts on this motion? Well, not to get ahead of us, but um, I think that this, uh, as well as Invention 3, 4, and 5, 
all sort of try to, at least in my mind, and again, I just speak for myself here, try to do roughly the same thing, which is write down explicitly what the rules already are. I'm not mm-hmm. sure that two, three, four, or five actually made any new rules that didn't already exist, or at the very least that weren't already enforced as though they existed. I mean, when I read the memos that have been pr- produced, uh, in- including the clarifications of the rules, as well as sanctions memos in past sanctions, as well as the rules themselves, it's not clear to me that any of these things are novel. A- and if they're not, it's really important that we write them down somewhere explicitly especially if people do them a lot or, or, or aren't sure whether or not they are or aren't allowed. So at least that was the, the, the mindset I was coming into all four of these motions with. Yeah, I actually agree with pretty much all of that. Uh, I liked this motion with the exception of that one change, which was pretty quickly adopted and nobody really had any huge issues with. Um, I will say as, as we sort of you know discuss each of these next few uh, motions. So Invention 2 we're discussing right now. Invention 03 uh, was the one we talked about related to witnesses not adding non-responsive invention answers on cross. Uh, Invention 04 uh, banned guilty portrayals and and defense witnesses uh, essentially being the culpable party. That passed with a few amendments. And then Invention 05 banned a witness from recanting their affidavit. With the exception of Invention 04 banning guilty portrayals, I think that, Nat, you're absolutely right, that each of those other things are are things that we all sort of understood and that are accepted in common practice. I think the only one of these four, if we sort of discuss them collectively, the only one that made any major substantive changes, you know, Invention 02 modified the electronic demonstrative rule that I do think that is a substantive change, not a huge change, but but a a meaningful change. Um, Invention 04 banning guilty portrayals Obviously, that is a fairly significant change because you do see that in the community uh, on a not infrequent basis, witnesses, mm-hmm. you know, getting up on the defense side and stuff like that. And there were a few amendments passed to that one because there were some really legitimate concerns raised related to, OK, well, in a case like uh, the the one from a couple years ago with the with the winery, um, where oftentimes the defense would use a defense that actually the winery made a mistake and that's why there was poison in the wine and you would put on an employee, a peony estates employee, um, who said, "Oh, actually, maybe we didn't do that right." And there were sort of explicit carve outs made that that can still be permitted on a case by case basis. So, I, I don't have any problem with with any of these. I thought they were all good. Um, and and Drew, since Nat kind of brought up those other ones, and I did too. Um, anything with three, four, or five that that you saw uh, on that end as well. Well, I think that I really agree with what both of you have said. I do think this was clarifying things that we generally understood to be that way. Um, but I think that three, especially the the witnesses, cross answers, um, I, I think did just such a good job of explaining it and, and did a really, really nice job of exactly what Nat's goal was that he mentioned at the beginning just making it clearer, making it really explicit. This is what you can and can't do. And I think my my, my hope is that this really um, helps teams to understand what is and isn't okay. Um, I think that it, it makes a lot of sense when you read it. So I was pleased with that one. Um, four, I agree with what you just said, Ben. I do think that was something that people did a lot. And I'm glad we clarified that it's no longer okay. And yeah, I think five is probably the most obvious one um yes please don't recant your affidavit and 
I guess it's good to write that down and make sure we're all on the same page that you cannot do that. But um, I would be shocked to find that any teams still thought today that that was an acceptable thing to do. But good to write it down anyway. I think I might be a, a little bit of a different mind than the two of you on whether or not Invention 4 is a new change to the rules or it just sort of um, establishes something that was already the rule. Certainly the way it goes about prohibiting the, the sorts of defense theories where you put a witness on the stand and they say things that are consistent with their affidavit, but then they say them all in a way that makes it abundantly clear to anyone who's listening that they're lying or that they're hiding something or that it's not true. And then you get up there in, in closing and you say, look, you could tell from the way that they were acting that they were lying. I think that's already prohibited. And um, something that Justin Bernstein explained when he was introducing this motion is that the board thought that as well. In, and so did a, quite a lot of the community. Even though it was prevalent, people sort of did think that it was against the rules. So certainly the, the prohibition on arguing and closing about it is a different way of, of, of getting at a prohibition on it. But the thinking there, at least... In, for me was it's very hard to say you can't to, to restrict demeanor and restrict how a, a witness portrays themselves. And so the, the way that you can kind of tamp down on that is by limiting the arguments you're allowed to make about the witnesses that you call. So I don't know if it was novel. I, I mean, I don't think it was. Uh, and I think I'm, I might um, disagree a little bit with the two of you there. I think that's a fair point. I think the only thing I'll I'll add is, at least for me, I don't know if I even had an opinion on whether it was in certain forms prohibited or not. You know, I know it was prohibited in the sanction from a couple years ago with the Bailey Delion example, but the the ones that were a little bit more borderline, you know, I think I was, you know, it's not something we ever did because I just don't think it's very good mock trial, but it, you know, it's not something I I know I feel like I knew with absolute certainty where the line was and now i feel like the line is is pretty well defined um so we've got a couple more of these to discuss so let's just kind of go to our last few uh motions that were passed uh, i want to talk very briefly about invention 11 before we talk about the the non-invention motions that were passed invention 11 was the one that instituted a penalty and appeal structure we discussed this in detail on our last episode. Let me just say 90% of this motion was completely fine. Uh, I really agreed, you know, Nat, earlier with what you were saying about how we really want to try to put a situation in where student suspensions are our absolute, you know, last case, you know, only break glass in case of emergency scenario. I think this motion went a long way to do that. My only criticism here is the appeal structure, uh, and particularly the fact that there is not an appeal at all for a verbal or written warning and that there's fairly limited appeals with a abusive discretion standard for many of the other things that was discussed and was not modified. Uh, I disagree with that decision. I made it clear why I disagree with that decision. I was, this is probably the only part of the board discussion that I was unimpressed with. I thought as a whole, the board meeting was really good and, and really positive. Uh, there was some sentiment expressed by members of the board that this really wasn't something that mattered that much or that the board didn't really have an obligation to provide a, you know, like a court style appeals process. Um, I really didn't like the way that that was expressed. It felt to me like the board sort of saying, we don't have to do this. Therefore, we're not going to do this as opposed to should we or should we not do this? 
My issue with the abuse of discretion standard that I expressed at the meeting was not that I don't trust the board or the CIC. I certainly do. It's that the abuse of discretion standard requires a finding, not that that the party below, uh, you know, on appeal was wrong, but that they abused their discretion, that they acted improperly or or unethically in some way. And I don't see a scenario in which that that would be found. I just don't think that it would be because the CIC is unlikely to do that. So it just didn't make a lot of sense to me. I, I agree that it's not something that's going to come in play very often, but I just really was not super impressed with this portion of the conversation. Uh, but for the most part, aside from that, don't really have any problem with this motion. And hopefully with all of the other things that we're doing, it will very rarely, if ever, come into play uh, with any of the issues that we've been talking about. I'll just quickly say that I agree with what you said, Ben. And if you want my full thoughts on this, please see the last episode. Um, I'm not <laughs> going to rehash all of it right now, but uh, I'm definitely very passionate and very disappointed with uh, with this particular motion and the way that it was discussed for sure. Okay, so we have a couple last ones that I want to kind of move us through relatively efficiently. We've talked about each of the invention motions uh, that that were considered. So we had a couple other ones. There was a diversity and inclusion motion to create a gender and pronoun form that was passed unanimously with with a lot of really great support. I think that's going to be um, a great addition and should appear in, in this year's case. Um, tab 04, which was a motion to allow co-host bids to NCT, was passed. I think that this is a really good one. We want to incentivize people to host NCT. We talked a little bit at last episode about TAC-01, which was the AMTA Innovation Program. This was advanced with no recommendation, but it was very well received at the meeting and passed, I think, either unanimously or, or comfortably. And I'm very excited to see how that is put into place. Uh, I think that it's a really good thing and, and just could be a really cool thing to look at moving forward. Um, Drew, Nat, any thoughts on either of those before we talk about our last couple of motions? I will briefly just say that I'm so excited about the innovation program. I think there's so many fun things that we're going to get to test out through invites, and I'm glad that AMTA is finally utilizing um, invites uh, to, to hopefully make the activity better for everyone. So definitely pleased with that. And yeah, the other ones you mentioned, I think, are just things that I can't imagine people having problems with. Um, so yeah, I think let's keep it moving. Yeah, so I'll I'll mention two other ones that uh, I think will be largely little to no discussion. Sam Jahangir, friend of the pod, proposed two motions that were passed uh, in new business related to uh, talking about uh, or making sure that AMTA emails out certain information, including board meeting agendas and case changes. Uh, we discussed a tabled motion in last, uh, the last episode related to a proposal by Ria Lakaraju uh, to create an AMTI alumni engagement committee. That motion was not untabled, untabled because Jonathan Woodward just went ahead and did it, and Ria is going to be leading that committee. So I think that that's uh, really fantastic. The very last one that we want to discuss before we take another break uh, is Rules 02, which is the scouting sunset provision. Uh, this was untabled, or this was taken off of the consent calendar and debated and discussed, and it was amended to allow for uh, a, an amendment that was proposed to essentially allow for the teams in a particular round at a round where you're not allowed to scout to give permission for outside non-affiliated people to watch the round. There was actually a lot of debate and discussion on this motion. And I will just say that I really like this change. I think it's a really good change. It allows a team, if they don't feel comfortable with someone watching to 
make sure that their round is not uh, watched by someone they don't know. But my guess is most teams, if they're contacted, will be okay with this. If you know a local team trying to build up their uh, their knowledge base can only come on a Saturday morning and wants to watch round two. So I thought that this change was good and it sort of slightly loosened the rule while keeping the spirit of the rule in place. So that's everything that happened at the board meeting. Uh, I think it was a really interesting meeting with a lot of cool stuff that happened. And I'm excited to see how some of these rules come into play in the upcoming season. We are going to go ahead and take a quick break here. Nat's going to stay on the line, and we are going to be joined in just a moment by Kate Hayner-Slattery, who is also on the Rookie Rumble case committee. And we're going to get a chance to chat with Nat and Kate about that Rookie Rumble case. So stay with us, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Mock Review. We are so excited to have another friend of the pod back with us, Kate Hayner-Slattery. It is so good to hear your voice and to get to chat with you. Everyone, if you don't know who Kate is, go check out episode 40 where we talked to Kate and got her origin story for Mock Trial. But Kate, I know you've been pretty busy lately with Mock Trial, so give everyone just a brief update. What have you been up to? Um, Obviously, I know that you have had a very successful last season, but tell everyone about it. Sounds good. Hi, it's great to be back. Um, I think last time you talked to me, I was working with both Northwestern Mock Trial and UW-Madison Mock Trial, but much more heavily with Northwestern Mock Trial at that point. Since then, I've kind of switched focus a little bit. I've been, I worked with Northwestern up to the end of last year, but also last year and going forwards, I've been working really heavily with UW-Madison Mock Trial, which has been a really wonderful experience. It's the program's gone through a lot of growth recently. They had a tremendously successful season last year where they made nationals for the first time in 14 years. I'm sure your listeners already know this because you had one of the students on to talk about kind of the run <laughs> and the experience getting there. Um, but since that podcast where you had one of the students on, they placed na- uh, honorable mention nationals, which was really beyond our wildest dreams for the season last year. So it was a, a wonderful time. It's a really exciting season going forwards. The competitors actually just finished up a summer scrimmage kind of of their own, even besides the rookie rumble, um, just to get a little practice and are really excited about the season. And I've been having a great time with that. So this is completely off script, but just as you were talking about that, Kate, it occurs to me that I am on a podcast right now with three people that are probably three of the most successful coaches in this activity. And I wonder, like, just really quickly, Kate, um, because this was like one of your first time coaching and and Nat, maybe if you want to give your thought on this too, but what is it like and how is it different seeing a team that you've coached reach really high successes versus when you and the team that you've been competing with have reached those successes? And like, if you can compare and contrast them, I just, I know I've had various, like, I have strong feelings about this having coached at the high school level, but I'm just curious what your take on it is because it is something that's so exciting and so cool. So if you want to tell us a little bit about that, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. When I was competing, you know, Wesleyan didn't really have a program until about my sophomore year. And when um, uh, two people, Victoria and Erica sort of started it and getting to nationals placing seventh senior year was, Uh, you know, it was awesome. It was everything that we'd hoped for. It was just fun to be able to do it with all my friends. And I'm also, you know, I still feel excited and and happy and pleased when teams that I coach, 
place highly and bid to nationals and, and, and do all of that. But I know it's a little bit hackneyed, but I've really sort of changed how I see success um, as a coach. Um, of course, I want people to be successful, but I want people to be successful if that's what they want. And I, I sort of, my proudest moments as a coach aren't getting the bid. It's seeing the students accomplish something that they set out to do. So someone who wanted to be a certain type of witness, getting to be that witness and do it really well, or someone who struggled with the rules of evidence, sort of having that aha moment where things kind of come together and click. So even when on paper, things don't quite go excellently, I've still found ways to find sort of little successes within that. Um, and th so that's probably the biggest difference for me um, is in, in college, a lot of it was we have these concrete goals. We want to place, we want to make it to nationals. And then now it's a little bit more about well, what do the students want? What's going to make them excited? Because when they're excited, then I get excited. This is really interesting for me to hear about because Nat actually coached me when I was a competitor. So it's interesting now being coaching different programs and having our own takes on coaching. Um, but I, I honestly think it is more rewarding as a coach than as a competitor, at least for me personally. Um, I, I think I'm a better coach than I ever was a competitor. Uh, and it's, it's more rewarding seeing a, like a program who hasn't been to nationals recently go through that growth as a coach and, and feel like I can be a part of that and help the students do what they want to do. Um, yeah. So I, I obviously loved all my time as a competitor and appreciated Nat as a coach when I was a competitor. Um, but I, I wouldn't go back now if I had the choice. Like I, I enjoy coaching more than I enjoy competing. I will just say I actually totally agree with that, Kate. And I also totally think that I'm a way better coach than I was competitor. Maybe I just think my students are way better than I ever was, but I totally agree with that. And I just, I thought it was fun while we have the two of you here to kind of get both of your takes on that. But um, we have both of you here because you both have been recently involved in writing the Rookie Rumble case. So I know that when... Um, it was first announced that this was going to be a thing. I was like, that is such a great idea. It's so cool. But I would love it if, um, Kate, maybe why don't you go first on this? Like, what was the initial, like, oh, cool, this is going on. I would love to get involved. Like, how did that process go? Yeah, so I actually had reached out to Jonathan Woodward earlier this year, like after the season ended, about wanting to get involved in ANTA a little bit more, like committee involvement and things like that. And so when Rookie Rumble stuff started happening, I think some of us who'd reached out got an email basically asking if we wanted to be involved in the Rookie Rumble committees or anything like that. And I was like, of course, I want to be involved in anything you'll give me. I would love to. Um, and after that, I think right around the end of June, we found out that we were going to be on the case committee. And it, at least for me, it was my first time being involved in a case committee. And I was absolutely thrilled to get the chance to write a case. And that was it a similar process for you or anything different? Yeah, I didn't think that I would get to, to be on the committee. Um, you know, I, I sort of sent the email out on a whim. Um, I was in the middle of a, a federal trial in Denver. Um, uh, and I was still on that trial for the first week or so of writing the case. And I sort of put in my email, uh, there's a very good chance that I can't come to a lot of the meetings. I can write stuff, but um, uh, I, I can't, like, commit to showing up to a bunch of meetings and 
I thought that was going to be disqualifying. And I'm, I'm so, so, so grateful that it wasn't because I had just a blast writing. Um, and we had a great group of people to write with. Well, why don't you take us through right now? Like, what was the, the like idea behind this, if you have any insights to it? And, and, you know, you know, obviously it's for younger members of our community, but like, what was the, the purpose behind that to you guys? And what, what was your take on, okay, if this is going to be for rookies, how do I want to write the case maybe similarly, differently, or, you know, any thoughts you have on just like the meaning behind and significance of this specific uh, invitational? And because I went to Kate first last time, Nat, I'll start with you. Yeah, well, I have to tease Kate a little bit here because um, first of all, her, she's the one who, who came up with the the idea that was obviously then refined by the whole committee, but um, all credit to her. And, and I think the reason she came up with it is because um, it's her favorite type of case, which is a case where you're not arguing about what happened, you're arguing about what things mean. Um, so that's sort of the, I think the mindset that at least I took into this after Kate proposed the, the topic. Um, I think that's kind of an interesting way of, of, of writing a case. Yeah, I really just got to write the case that I, I always wanted to play, honestly. Like I, my favorite cases, as much as people may think this is a hot take, were Empower Milk and Winter VTBD. And this was in some ways the things I liked about that, but hopefully in a way that's, that a lot of people will appreciate and feel very timely. Um, but I, I really enjoyed kind of getting to write one that I would like to play because I think that's going to be something that's going to make it more interesting to read if, if the people writing it were engaged in what they're actually writing about. Um, and in terms of how I would wrote it for rookies or how I thought about writing the parts that I wrote for rookies, it was mostly just interesting objection battles and interesting legal issues that wouldn't just fall flat after the first time you ran them. Um, things that would let people step out of their comfort zone or let people try new arguments they didn't see in the criminal case last year, um, especially to prepare for a civil case this year. You know, it's interesting hearing you say, Kate, that those are your two favorite cases. I think that reading this case, I definitely get that sense of, wow, this feels very similar, not in a, in, not in a like, oh, it's the same case, but in a that general type of case, that theme um, feels very similar. So I, you know, not surprising to hear that at all. Um, before we get into what the case is actually about, um, and I know that you guys weren't actually on the planning side of this, I wonder if you can just speak to a little bit what the reception has been of the case topic and the case itself, um, but also the tournament in general. If you can sit, speak anything to it, we'd love to hear how how's that been going. Uh, we've mostly been hearing rumors and conversation from the planning committee who've been doing the bulk of the work on everything other than the case writing itself. Um, but from what we've heard, it sounds like the interest has been off the charts. More people signed up than their original cap, and they, they were able to increase the cap through a lot of judge recruitment, it sounds like. Uh, and it, it seems like there's just a lot of people from schools all over, from mashups of different schools and from multiple teams from the same school that are really interested in trying the case. I'm very hopeful that they will like the case, although I don't have a lot of insight yet as to whether they do, other than trying to refresh mock trial confessions to see if anyone's complaining about it yet. Um, but I think the interest overall has been really high, and I'm excited to see if people like actually playing it. Yeah, the administrative committee has been doing just a tremendous amount of work um, putting everything together. Um, uh, I think that they are going to put on just a phenomenal tournament. 
uh, for the rookies. And um, as somebody who has rookies competing there, I am just so very grateful that they came up with the idea to put this on and that they're spending the time to, to make it happen. Uh, I know it is a lot of work to put on a tournament of this scale. And I think that they're, they're just doing such a great job and, and such a great thing for the community. Yeah, I totally agree with all of that. And I will say that as someone who's also coaching or helping coach a team uh, in the tournament, I got a chance to look at the divisions uh, earlier today. There are 48 teams in the Rookie Rumble, which is an enormous amount of teams for a summer tournament. Uh, and just the amount of work that goes into that is tremendous. And everyone who's involved in that, from judge recruitment to administration, is doing an incredible job. Second thing I'll say, it's so funny, Kate, that you mentioned Winter VTBD. When I was working with the team earlier, I literally said to them, go read Winter VTBD, go back and look at some of the footage from that year. I think that there's a lot of, um, I'll say similarities, but not in a bad way whatsoever. I think in a really interesting way, because I also, that was the first case that UMBC ever advanced to nationals on. So I have a lot of love for that case. I think it was a really clever, well-written case in a lot of ways. And I love uh, this year's case. I think it's really, really well done. So let's talk a little bit about the specifics of this year's case. Um, can one of you, to kind of start us out, just give our listeners a summary of what the case is about and what the basic issues are uh, that you all have written into this year's case? Okay, the year is 2020, and the COVID pandemic has just begun. Um, and uh, no, uh, but... Seriously, it's a, it's a whistleblower retaliation case. So um, we have a, a plaintiff uh, who was hired to develop these COVID tests and then started to notice that maybe they weren't working very well or at all. And they then went and reported that to their bosses who may or may not have brushed that off, depending on who you ask. And then they went and reported it to sort of this investigator who works for like an activist investor who kind of maybe promised the plaintiff a promotion if they could get some dirt on the on the current management. Um, and there are a bunch of different directions the defense can go. So I won't try to characterize what their position is other than saying that they disagree that the with the plaintiff. Um, and we tried to build a case that has something for everybody. So the plaintiff could be played a number of different ways. I think the defendant could be played a number of different ways. We've got some experts in there. You know, maybe the investigator could be a little bit quirky. It could lend itself to some character elements or it could just be a, a straight, um, you know, stock expert. Um, so I'm hoping that people will have a chance to to try new things, but also if they want to play to their strengths, that we've given them the the latitude to do that as well. Yeah. And I can say from reading the case, I think it's a lot of fun. I think it presents some complex issues, but does them in a way that's manageable in the in the condensed uh, time frame that the students have. And of course, with this being a tournament geared towards students who have a little bit less experience. So we ask this a lot of the time when we have case authors on the podcast. We've had several case authors over the course of the last several years. Uh, and so I'm always kind of interested to hear about the process. Um, so Kate, I'll kind of start with you and then Nat, I'll be interested for your thoughts as well. I know, for example, that at the board meeting, the civil case led by Sam and Elise met, but you guys met as well. You met for several hours in the morning of the board meeting and, and a good portion of your case committee was there. So once you all formed your committee of five, how did you actually go about 
working together to put together a case like this? How did you divide up the labor and how did you make sure that the final product was ready to go? Sure. So we, I mean, this is my first case, so I don't have a lot of things to compare it to, but my impression is it was a much shorter timeline than most AMTA cases tend to get. We, we really had about 20 days from when we found out we were working on the case and to actual case release, which made it a very intense period of time, but a lot of fun. We initially kind of met on Zoom a few times to talk through what are our ideas about cases, which one do we want to go with, what are the rough outlines of the witnesses, and then we divided up the witnesses to start off. Um, we, everyone other than Gelf took one of the witnesses and we each, we each wrote a draft of each of the four witnesses. And then we came back together with those witnesses and figured out where all the places we'd had different ideas and the contradictions were and to try to streamline that and put it together. At the board meeting, we got to have a little bit of time to just sit down and work for about three hours on the case and really iron out some of the inconsistencies and add more exhibits, things like that. I remember sketching out one of the exhibits on a piece of legal pad paper that I then actually turned into an exhibit just in that little chunk of time. Uh, but it was it was a cool experience. It really felt like we all could contribute something to it rather than just one person writing the majority of it and us proofreading. It was each of us were bringing a witness and a whole a part of the case into it. Yeah, and and I want to give a big shout out here to to Mike Gelfand who um did a, a really terrific job uh both encouraging us that we could get it done in the time that we had to get it done but also um helping to teach uh four people who hadn't written a case before uh how to write one um like kate i am also frantically refreshing uh, mock trial confessions so the jury's still out on whether or not um it came together in the way that, that I think it did, but um, I, I hope it worked out really well. And if it did, that, that's a big credit to Mike for, um, for, for leading us and, and teaching us so much. Yeah, and, and that's certainly not surprising. I think Mike or, or Gelf, as, as he's known in these parts, is one of our more talented case authors and has chaired several case committees and been on several case committees. And, and really, between the two of you and uh, Mahmoud Bari and Ian Lampert, you had such a fantastic case committee and, and people who obviously did a really great job. So one other question on my end, and Nat, I'll stick with you initially. Uh, so that I thought there's a couple interesting things about the format of, of this case. Uh, first, obviously, we're headed back to Zoom for this particular tournament. Understandably, I actually think this is such a great example of how Zoom mock trial can continue to be useful even as we return to an in-person season. So between the Zoom format, and then of course, this is a 2v2 competition. This is not your full-blown AMTA three versus three with our full time limits. You've got shorter time limits, more of a condensed structure. So going back to Zoom and having more of a condensed structure, how did those two things factor into how you all built a case like the one that you ended up writing? Yeah, well, we, we knew from Zoom mock that there were a few things that we needed to do. Uh, one of which was streamline some of the boring technical parts by pre-admitting a lot of exhibits. Um, we knew that we needed to create things so that they could be shared on screen. Um, so, you know, we were careful about how we spaced things, um, careful about formatting. Um, the, the two witnesses against two witnesses was new to me. Um, but I think we did a, a fair job of, of trying to include um, a few very clear points that were good for each side. So it would come across kind of neatly. Um, you know, we know that, that judges on Zoom sometimes um, have 
more trouble as we all do um, paying in, uh, paying attention. So the, the less sort of nitty gritty that we could make it, maybe the better. But um, I know there's also um, uh, some technical parts of the case as well. Um, but but we, we, we hopefully put in enough um, visuals that, that those will still still work. I think on the 2v2 format, a big question in my mind when we first found out we were doing it was, are there going to be experts? Is there going to be an expert on each side or not? Because not only is it 2v2, it's also fixed calls. Like if we put an expert into the case, everyone is running that expert. And everything I've heard about other 2v2 or, or small small uh, cases is that if there's an expert on one side and not the other, it can cause some case imbalance. So we ended up going with an expert on each side, or at least a person who can be played as an expert on each side. Um, but we wanted to make sure there were still interesting witnesses for people to play if they weren't as much of a fan of experts. So we wanted to make sure there was a lot of different ways you could play the plaintiff or the defendant and a lot of different ways you could add some character to the experts. Um, but I, I like what we settled on, and I think it gives a little bit of range and might challenge people to do some more with experts than they usually do. So I want to ask a kind of very specific question, um, but to those that haven't read the case yet, which, you know, either you're someone that is competing, in which case you should be reading the case, or if you're not, um, then I will do my best to summarize. But basically, in in the special instructions, you guys explain that one of the witnesses, specifically the defense, um, I guess sort of party rep, the COO, I think, of the company, um, they are a deposition witness. And you have a whole explanation that the deposition isn't an affidavit and uh, just some details surrounding like what exactly it means that this is a deposition witness. And I think just given the context of the earlier part of this episode where we talked about all the invention rules, I would love to get some of your thoughts on you know why you guys included it this way, what the kind of purpose behind it was. And you know obviously, I don't want you to get into what you're hoping to see from it, but what kind of the motivation behind um, this style of witness was. Um, and since we went to Nat first last time, Kate, I'll go to you first. I personally really like deposition witnesses, especially in a case where there's like not a, a character witness on the side or as much non-expert room to kind of do weirder things. I think it adds a little space to kind of take your own interpretation of the case or go in unusual directions as defense um, in a way that can just make trials more different from each other than they would otherwise be. But we actually went back and forth on whether to have the defendant in this case have an affidavit or, or at least be able to invent around their deposition or not. And we ended up settling on allowing them to, which mostly just to add a little bit of variety to the trials and make for some more interesting ideas coming from the defendant and to give people practice with a deposition witness when they haven't, if they're a rising sophomore, they haven't seen one before. I guess that my my next question is more of kind of a fun one, but as you know, any case writer that we've had on the podcast talks about, they're always kind of a favorite part of the case or maybe an Easter egg thrown in here or there. And I'd love to hear from both of you, if you have any, like what was your favorite thing to write in the case or the favorite little Easter egg that you stored away? Um, and just kind of if you can explain those for us, I think people always love to hear just kind of like what was your favorite part as a writer? Um, so Nat, why don't we go to you first? Yeah, well um... – uh, certainly, there is a Garmo v. Uh, Evans case law um, <laughs> that um, was pulled from some podcast hosts that we all know and love. Um, 
But um, I, I think my favorite Easter egg that I got to put in there was um, the names of, of some of the players who are not witnesses in the case. Um, a lot of them are pulled from uh, this graduating class of seniors at Wesleyan, um, folks who I got to coach for all four years uh, of, of their time in college. Uh, there are a whole, whole bunch of them. And they're really, really just a, a, a wonderful group of people. Uh, and and it was very nice to be able to, um, you know, in my mind, g- give them something, put them in a case to, to sort of memorialize everything that they did for, not just for Wesleyan and, and their teammates there, but but for for really all of AMTA because they, they got to know a bunch of other programs and and went out of their way to to try to help out other programs where they could. Um, so I was very proud of them, and and I was very pleased that I was able to put them in there. I definitely echo that. I also really liked being able to slip in references to, I put in a reference to one of my high school teammates who I haven't competed with in nearly a decade now, but was able to put her name in the case. Um, I also really liked, this was not a thing I wrote, but Ian wrote in a bunch of D&D references into the defendant, especially, and at least one person on mock trial confession seems to have appreciated that, but I also enjoyed that a lot and it made reading the case drafts a lot of fun. Um, and one thing that I did write at at risk of exposing myself to angry rookies sending assassins after me, I wrote a lot of the defense expert Patterson, and I really enjoyed writing all of the terrible bias lines where you can just hear the cross writing itself in your head as you write them. It was very (laughs) satisfying to me and I do expect to be murdered in my sleep tonight. Well, we will do our best to uh, to release this tomorrow, so that, that you have at least another day to contemplate your decisions. Um, but seriously, guys, I got to say this was a really fun case to read. I, I was able to get access to it and read it, and it really is a very well written case. A lot of fun. I think it has a lot of different avenues that I think people are going to go down, and I think that our community is definitely very lucky to have had the likes of both of you and the rest of your committee. Um, working on this case. I think that these rookies are really in for a treat. So I'm really excited um, to see how it goes. Um, So again, just thank you both so much for doing it. Um, Ben, do you have anything uh, you wanted to say to them before we wrap up? No, I mean, I'll echo the the Garmo v. Evans case law. I think (laughs) in canon, we we had a law firm together a couple of years ago. Clearly something's gone wrong since then. If we're, uh, I guess I sued you and then you countersued me. So hopefully that's not a, a... looking towards the future and how th- how things go here. Uh, but yeah, I really echo everything that, that you said about this case. I think it's really, really spectacular. I noticed that the, the case was in 2018. So I think that's the year that the podcast started. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but maybe, you know, the, the, the firm had to break up so the podcast could form. I'm, I'm going to go with that as the can. We've, we've worked it out since then, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so, I, but yeah, I, I totally agree with everything you said about the case. I think that it's really, really great. Um, and I just think that I sort of as my last thought, and then you can kind of take us out, is the Rookie Rumble was something that I think when we first discussed it, we discussed it very briefly, and neither one of us had any problems with it, but, but I was sort of like, oh, you know, like this is something that we can do and and it'll be fine. It's turning out to be, I think, a really spectacular success. And I think what's really great about this case, Nat uh, and Kate, is I think it's a great learning case. It's got some really cool details. I, I totally get what you're saying, Kate, about all those bias lines. I write Maryland's high school case and I love being like, all right, 
how bad should this be? Should this be like extreme bias, mid bias, like what, you know, whatever it is. Um, so I totally get that. But I think this is a great case for our rising sophomores and rising juniors to get really unique experiences, especially in a tournament like this one, but also challenge them a little bit in a way that will force them and, and expect them to learn new skills and to refine the skills that they have. So I think you'd both did a spectacular job at the case, and I'm super excited to see how it plays out at the tournament itself. Well, as this is our most recent episode uh, after the Patreon was announced, uh, before we wrap up, we do want to take a second to thank um, all of the $5 Patreons that we have on the channel. Again, as we said at the beginning, it means the world to us, and we are so excited that one of them is here with us today. So, Kate, thank you so much for being one of our Patreons, and I, I just hope that it has been all it cracked up to be and, and that being a part of our Patreon has really been the, the best thing you could have done with those $5. It's been a blast so far, even <laughs> just the Discord, which I know is not necessarily a $5 thing. It's a free thing has been really enjoyable to be a part of already. Well, there you have it, folks. A ringing endorsement from Kate. Nat's ringing endorsement from Mock Trial Confessions is definitely still on the table. But we hope that you all can join us on either the Discord or the Patreon soon. Um, we'd love to have you there. But again, thank you so much, Nat and Kate, for being here on the podcast. And folks, we hope to see you soon. But this has been The Mock Review with Ben and Drew.